When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the new Mutual Audio Network. Welcome home. The following audio drama is rated G for general audiences. Sixty-three Audio presents the Old Time Radio Essentials Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the first installment of a new podcast, Old Time Radio Essentials. My name is Pete Lutz, coming to you from Corpus Christi, Texas, and I'm joined by... I'm Jane St. John from Sandia Park, New Mexico. And I'm Paul RBC from Peoria, Illinois. The purpose of our show is to present specific episodes of our favorite Old Time Radio series, episodes that stand out as particularly representative of those series, or as one of those quotable episodes that fans of old-time radio like to discuss when they get together. Now, we'll open each episode by introducing the episode. We'll describe it briefly, then we'll play it back for you, and then we'll come back at the end of the selection and discuss it at length, and each of us giving their opinions on its merit, its performance, or anything that stands out for us. And that's exactly what we're presenting to you. Just our opinions on whether or not it's worthy of a place in every old-time radio aficionado's personal collection. You don't have to agree with us. And, in fact, we might not agree with each other. But we do hope you'll enjoy what we bring to the table and come back for more. Each of us will take turns selecting a show for discussion. And since this is pretty much Pete's idea, he gets the first crack at it. Why, thank you. That being said, let me introduce the first selection for your consideration. Treasure Island, the Mercury Theater on the Air, Episode 2, starring Orson Welles, original broadcast date, July 18, 1938. This episode was selected by me as our first essential, mainly because I love the Mercury Theater series and because everybody and his brother has already dissected the War of the Worlds, including me, in a podcast released last October 30th, which was, incidentally, the 80th anniversary of that broadcast. But don't get me wrong, this adaptation of Stevenson's story is absolutely wonderful, in my opinion, some of the finest performances you'll hear in a radio show of the time. And so, without further delay, we present Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island from the Mercury Theater on the Air. And now, friends, adjust your radio dials to the proper frequency. Get comfortable and listen. Columbia Network takes pleasure in presenting Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in the second of a unique new summer series of nine dramatic productions. The first time in its history that radio has brought to the country an entire theatrical institution. 
Columbia is proud to welcome Orson Welles to its roster of stars and to give him the opportunity of bringing to the air those same qualities of vitality and imagination that have made him the most talked-of theatrical director in America today. Good evening. This is Orson Welles speaking. If there's anything bloodthirstier than a werewolf, it's a pirate. The Mercury Theater is playing safe. Now, if vampires and their ilk leave you as uncannily cold as old Dracula himself, who was staked down firmly, and it is to be hoped permanently, in his own family plot last week, then there are figures to prove that you are susceptible to buried treasure. We calculate that no decent, law-abiding citizen is immune to pirates. There are cowboys and Indians, there are gangsters and G-men, but these delights are inconstant like the short skirt. I don't care how young you are. Nothing charms, nothing ingratiates, nothing wins like a one-legged, double-barreled buccaneer with earrings, a handkerchief on his head, and a knife in his teeth. What could be more appropriate on the starboard rail of your four-masted brigantine? If you haven't a four-masted brigantine, you have Treasure Island. It's in your library because it's a great English classic, and this evening, because it's a great story... It's on your radio. That's what I mean by playing safe. Once there was a small boy who asked his stepfather, who had written a number of books, please, to write something interesting. The stepfather, seeing his point, immediately contributed a serial to something repugnant called Young Folks, a periodical circulated among that section of the English nation known as Tiny Tots, who were very prevalent in the 80s. The name of the serial was The Sea Cook by Captain George North, and if the tiny tots didn't think it was interesting, they should have been boiled in oil. The story was begun, the stepfather says, on a chill September morning by the cheek of a brisk fire and the rain drumming on the window. The small boy himself helped a lot, even though Captain North got the credit, and so did a third and equally incurable small boy, the author's father. They drew a map first, the chart of an island showing very queer and wonderful attractions, Spyglass Shoulder, for instance, and Skeleton Island, and the North Cache with a bar silver. And then, on that chill September morning by that brisk fire of theirs, the three plotters buried their plunder, doubloons and louis d'or, gold and silver and rich jewels and pieces of eight. That's why the story was finally called Treasure Island. It's foolish to guess who's tuned in on this broadcast, but if in some way... Where we were retelling the story, hoped devoutly that he, with the Samoans, laid to rest in the hills of their own faraway treasure island and who is still known out there only as the great teller of tales, would not wish tonight as he did so unaccountably at first to suppress the real name of Captain George North. The small boy, of course, should have been decorated. It's a better world because he asked for something interesting. But then he was lucky. There are millions and millions of small boys. But only one of us had Robert Louis Stevenson for a stepfather. Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson with Orson Welles as Long John Silver and as Jim Hawkins who tells the story. Treasure Island. Dr. Livesey and the rest of the gentlemen having asked me to write down the whole particulars about Treasure Island from the beginning to the end, keeping nothing back 
but the bearings of the island, and that only because there is treasure not yet lifted, I take up my pen in the year of grace, 1783, and go back to that time 19 years ago when my father kept the Admiral Benbow in and the brown old seaman with a saber cut first took up his lodging under our roof. I was 14, but I remember him as if it were yesterday. Mother called to me from upstairs. Yes, Mother. He came plodding to the inn door, his sea chest following behind him on a hand barrow. A tall, strong, heavy, nut-brown man, his tarry pigtail falling over the shoulders of his soiled blue coat, his hands ragged and scarred with black broken nails, and the saber cut across one cheek, a dirty, livid white, singing that old sea song that he sang so often afterwards. Admiral Benbow Inn, sir. Admiral Benbow, eh? Nice, lonely-looking, pleasant-situated grog shop. Folks don't come here much, do they, boy? Not much company? No, sir, more's pity. No? Well, then it's the birth for me. I'm a plain man, rum and bacon, eggs, all I want, and that head up there for the watch ships off. I have a mind to stay here a bit. Here, you matey. You were the wheelbarrow. Bring up alongside, help up my chest. You two boys, heavy. Yes, sir. Call me Captain, boy. Captain. Yes, Captain. Just one thing more. Yes, Captain. You ain't seen him, have you? No, sir. Who do you mean? Along the road, maybe. You might have seen him somewhere, as you can't tell. Let me know if you do, boy. A seafaring man. Yes, sir. With one leg. Yes, sir. Captain! Yes, Captain. Bring me a noggin of rum, boy. And so he came to live under our roof. We never knew his name. We called him the Captain. He was a very silent man by custom all day. He hung around the cove or upon the cliffs with a brass telescope staring out to sea. All evening he sat in a corner of the parlor next to the fire and drank rum and water very strong. And every day when he came back from his stroll, he would ask the same question. Jim? Yes, Captain? Did he see Ferran men go by today along the road? No, Captain. And Jim? Yes, sir? You're a good boy, Jim. You wouldn't lie to me ever, would you, Jim? No, sir. You haven't seen him, have you, Jim? Jim, there's a silver folkney for you on the first of every month. You keep your weather eye open for a seafaring man with one leg. Let me know the moment you see him, won't you, Jim? A seafaring man with one leg. How that personage haunted my dreams. On stormy nights when the wind shook the four corners of the house and the surf roared along the cove and up the cliffs. I could see him in a thousand forms. Now the leg would be cut off at the knee. Now at the hip. Now he was a monstrous kind of a creature who had never had but one leg. And that in the middle of his body. You'll keep your 
whether I open Wolfshire Jim for a seafaring man with one leg. A seafaring man with one leg. Months went by. The captain bade fair to ruin us. We kept on staying week after week, month after month. And never a penny of money, Jim. Not a penny as he paid us since the day he came here. And me a poor widow woman. Mother, why don't you ask him for some? Well, I'll tell you the truth, Jim. I'm afraid to ask him. I'm afraid of the man. Now of your father. In all that time, none of us ever saw him open the great sea chest that was in his room. There were nights when he took a deal more rum and water than his head could carry. Often I heard the house shaking and all the neighbors joining in for dear life. Drink and the devil has done. Quiet, amidship! Quiet! He would force them all to listen to his stories. Dreadful stories they were about hanging and walking the plank and storms at sea and the dry tortugas and wild deeds and places on the Spanish main. By his own account, he must have lived his life among some of the wickedest men that God ever allowed upon the sea. The captain had been living with us almost a year when there occurred the first of the mysterious events that rid us at last of his presence. It was one... January morning, very early, a pinching, frosty morning, the captain had risen earlier than usual and set down the beach with his telescope under his arm. My mother was upstairs and I was lying the breakfast table against the captain's return when the parlor door opened and a stranger stepped in. Sonny, come here, Sonny. Is this table for my mate, Bill? I don't know you, mate, Bill. I'm laying this for a man who stays in the house. We call him the captain. Well, my mate Bill would be called the captain, like as not. Now, we'll put it for argument, like, that your captain's got a cut on one cheek. And we'll put it, if you like, that that cheek's the right one, eh? Well, God save me, there he is now. There's my mate Bill. That's him with a spyglass under his arm. Bless his old heart to be sure. You and me will just get back behind the door, Sonny. And we'll give Bill a little surprise, we will. Bless his heart, I said again. Hello, Bill. Come, Bill. You knows me. You knows an old shipmate, Bill, surely. Black dog. Black dog as ever was. <laughs> Bill, Bill. We've seen a sight of times, as too. So you run me down. Here I am. We'll speak up. What is it? That's you, Bill. You're in the right of it, Billy. I'll have a glass of rum from this dear child here, what I've took such a liking to. And we'll sit down, if you please, and talk square like old shipmates. Sit down, Bill. And you, Sonny, get out. Yes, sir. And none of your keels on me, do you For a while, I could hear nothing but a low gabbing. Suddenly, the voices began to grow higher. No, no, no. And an end on it. If it comes to swinging, swing all say aye. 
streaming blood run off down the road. Presently, the captain returned, alone. Give me some rum. Captain, are you hurt? I, I must get away from here. Get away, that's what. I must get away from here. What's happened, Jim? What's happened? It's the captain, Mother. The captain? Oh! Oh, dear, dear me, what a disgrace. I've been afraid of something like this ever since he came into the house with that old chest of his. I got the rum and tried to put it down his throat, but his teeth were tightly shut and his jaws were as strong as iron. An hour later... Our friend, Dr. Lipsy, came. Doctor, what shall we do? Where is he wounded, Doctor? Wounded? The fiddlesticks end. No more wounded than you or I. The men's had a stroke. Oh, yeah. uh, oh. where's, where's Black Dog? Black Dog? There is no Black Dog except what you have in your own back. You've been drinking rum, man, and you've had a stroke. Now, listen to me. One glass of rum a day won't kill you. But if you take one, you'll take another and another. And then you'll die. Die and go to your own place like the man in the Bible, and the world will be rid of a very dirty scoundrel. Do you understand that? The name of rum for you is death. About noon the next day, I stopped at the captain's door with some medicine. Who is it? It's me, Jim. Come in, Jim. Come in. He was lying very much as we'd left him. Jim, you're, you're the only one here that's worth anything. You know I always been good to you. Never a month but I've given you a silver pony for yourself. Now you see me, I'm pretty low and deserted by all. Jim, you'll bring me a, a noggin of rum, won't you, matey? But the doctor... Doctors is all swabs! Don't have a drain of rum, Jim. I'll have the horrors. I've seen some of them already. The old flint in the corner there behind you is plain as print. I've seen him. Jim, I'll give you a golden guinea for a noggin. When I brought it to him, he seized it greedily uh, and drank it out. Uh, that's something I'm sure enough. Now, Mitty, did that doctor say how long I was to lie here in this old berth? Why, a week at least. Oh, uh, thunder, a week! I can't do that. They'll have the black spot on me by then. The lovers is going about getting the wind to be this blessed moment. Lovers just couldn't keep what they got. And more a nail was another's. It's it's in my old sea chest, Jim. The thing thereafter. They'll tip me the black spot. I know it. I was first mate, I was. Old Flint's first mate. And I'm the only one as knows the place he buried it. He gave it me at Savannah when he lay a dying. What's the black spot, Captain? summons from old Flint's crew. A summons. And them as gets it, Jim, is lucky when they're dead. So, a week went by. And then, about three o'clock of a bitter, foggy, frosty afternoon... I saw someone drawing slowly near along the road. He was plainly blind, for he tapped before him with a stick. He wore a great green shade over his eyes and nose. And he was hunched as if with age or weakness. 
and wore a huge old tattered sea cloak with a hood. Christian friends, take pity on a poor blind mariner as has lost the precious sight of his eyes in the gracious defense of his native country, England, and God bless King George, where or in what part of his country he may now be. You are at the Admiral Benbow Inn, sailor. Yes. Black Hill Cove. I hear a voice, a young voice, and here where I miss me delights. Will you give me your hand, my kind young friend, and lead me into the captain? I held up my hand, and the horrible, soft-spoken, eyeless creature gripped it in a moment like a vice. Now, boy, take me into the captain. Sir, upon my word, I dare not. You been... heard me. Take me in strike. Oh. Will you take me into the captain? Yes, sir. Good. And when I'm in view... Say to him, he's a friend for you, Bill Bones. If you don't, I'll twist your arm right out of your body. Do you hear? Yes, sir. Stash, you bastard, damn you. Now, forward march. Here's a friend for you, Bill Bones. Now, Bill, sit where you are. Business is business. Hold out your left hand, Bill. Boy, take his left hand by the wrist and bring it near to my right. Here's a little bit of paper for you, Bill Bones. <laughs> Now that's done, I'll be going. Goodbye, Bill. Goodbye. Jim? Yes, Captain? Time is it, Jim? Ten o'clock. Ten o'clock. Ten o'clock, six hours. We'll deader them yet, you and Black Dog and Long John Silver. The whole crew of them, we're... Captain. Captain. Captain! Captain! The captain was dead. And there we were. My mother and I, a woman and a boy of 14, alone at night in the house with the dead captain's body on the parlor floor. All this money he does. A whole year, never a penny from him. And me, a poor widow. But, Mother, if Black Dog comes back, or the blind oh, man... Black Dog, fiddlesticks. There's something in that old chest of his upstairs that's rightfully mine. And we'll have that chest open if we die for it. Mother. Close the blinds, Jim. We don't want anybody watching us from the outside. We have to get the key off <laughs> Look, Mother. Look. On the floor... Close to the dead man's hand, there was a little round of paper. 
blackened on one side. The black spot. I took it up and found you it. You have till ten tonight. Four hours. Now, Jim, find that. Tree. I felt in his pockets one after another. There, sure enough, hanging on a bit of tarry string, we found the key. Then my mother got a candle in the bar, and holding each other's hands, we went upstairs to his room. Give me the key, Jim. Now then. Nothing in here. Not a thing of value, not a penny. Mother, look. There, before us, lay the last things in the chest, a bundle tied up in oilcloth looking like papers, and a canvas bag... It gave forth at a touch the jingle of gold. You see, Jim, I knew we'd find it. But I'll show these rogues that I'm an honest woman. I'll have me do and not a farthing over. Here, here, Jim, hold this bag. The coins were of all countries and sizes. Doubloons and Louis d'Or and guineas and pieces of eight. Mother. What is it, Jim? Mother, listen. Come, Mother. Mother, take the hole and let's be gone. No, I'll have to do, Jim, and no more. But, Mother, you heard him. That was the blind man. I know what I'm doing. I know the right. But, Mother, you don't know. Oh, dear. I'll take what I have. And I'll take this. These papers. Quick, Mother, quick. Take my hand. Next moment, we had opened the door and were in full retreat toward the village. Look, Jim. Over the hill. There they come. Run, Mother, run. Oh, Jim. Jim, I'm going to faint. Oh, Jim. Take the money and go on. Mother. Oh. Mother. She had fainted. I managed somehow to drag her down the bank into the shadow of the ditch. A moment later, the house was surrounded. Burns! Burns! Bill Burns! Will you answer me? Down with the door, then! Hundreds, on 
Buy your bedroom. I'll go with you, Squire. So will Jim. And there'll be a credit for the undertaking. There is only one man I'm afraid of. Who's that? Name the dog, sir. You, sir. For you cannot hold your tongue. moments we shall be bound for Treasure Island with Dr. Lipsy, Squire Trelawney, and Jim Hawkins. We pause now for station identification. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. WABC, New York. Tonight, the Columbia Network is bringing you Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. As Jim Hawkins was telling us, we are eager to leave the Benbow Inn behind and set out for the docks in Bristol. It was longer than the squire imagined ere we were ready for the sea. Weeks passed on then. One fine day there came a letter from the squire, from Bristol. Dear Livesey, the ship is more than finished. It lies at anchor ready for sea. It was the crew that delayed me. Till the most remarkable stroke of fortune brought me the very man that I required. I was standing on the dock when, by the merest accident, I fell in talk with him. He had hobbled down there that morning with a parrot on his shoulder to get a smell of salt, he said. Out of pure pity, I engaged him on the spot to be ship's cook. Long John Silver, he is called, and has lost an egg. Well, sir, I thought I'd only found the cook, but it was a crew I'd discovered. Between Silver and myself, we got together in a few days a company of the toughest old sorts imaginable. I declare we could fight the frigate. See what ho! Hang the treasure! It's the glory of the sea that has turned my head! On the 16th of April, the schooner Hispaniola set sail from Bristol Harbor. It's more than 19 years ago, but I can remember it. As if it were yesterday. Me and my new blue cabin boys. Were. Nineteen years ago. Leaning over the rail, waving goodbye to my mother. And doing my best not to cry. For at the last moment, it sort of hurt to leave her. And it was the first time I had been away from home. Then, a little before noon, Captain Smollett gave an order. The bosun sounded his pipe. And the crew began to man the capstan bar. Soon, the anchor was short up. Soon it was hanging dripping at the bars. Soon the sail began to draw, and the land and shipping to slip by on either side. The Hispaniola had begun her voyage to the Isle of Treasure. On the second day out, I made the acquaintance of our one-legged ship's cook, Long John Silver. Hey there, boy. Come in. Come on in to Long John's galley. To tell you the truth, at the very first mention of Long John Silver in the squire's letter, I had taken a fear in my mind that this might be the very one-legged sailor that I had watched for all those months at the Benbow Inn. But one look at him was enough. I had seen Captain Bones and Black Dog and Blind Pew, and I knew what a buccaneer looked like. Very different from this clean and pleasant-looking sea cook. His left leg was cut off close to the hip, and under the left shoulder he carried a crutch, which he managed wonderfully. Hopping about on it like a bird. Ah, this is a fate. This is a fate. This is a fate. Are you Mr. Silver, sir? Yes, me lad. Such is me name, to be sure. 
And you're Hawkins, eh? Nobody more welcome than yourself, my lad, in old John's galley. <laughs> Sit down, hear the news. Your first trip to sea, Hawkins? Yes, sir. Well, well. Well, there's a lot of things you're going to learn before this year voyage is over. What do you think, Hawkins? And if there's anything you want to know, Hawkins, you just come to old John Silver and ask him, see? He'll tell you. His galley was as clean as a new pin. The dishes hanging up burnished, and his parrot in a cage in one corner. Here's Captain Flint. I call my parrot Captain Flint. Yeah, the parrot, that's the famous buccaneer. Here's Captain Flint, predicting success down void. Wasn't you, Captain? Uh, this is a <laughs> yeah, she's a powerful old bird, is Captain Flint. Two hundred years old, she's a day, and if anybody's seen more wickedness, it must be the devil himself. She sailed with England, the great Captain England, the pirate, on the old walrus, which Flint's old ship. I've seen a muck with the red blood and fit to sink with gold. She's been at Madagascar and at Malibar and Suriname and Providence and Portobello. To look at her, you'd think she was a baby, Hawkins, but you smell powder, haven't you, Captain? Uh, stand by to go by. And blood, eh, Captain? Put her amidships. <laughs> Animal hands. Oh. And pieces of aid, eh, Captain? Pieces of aid. Pieces of aid. end of the third week, we left Madeira behind us. The ship proved to be a good ship. The crew seemed to be capable seamen. There was only one man aboard who was not satisfied, and that was the ship's master, Captain Smollett. I'll speak plain. I don't like it. I don't like this cruise. I don't like the men. I don't like me officers. That's short and sweet. But nobody paid much attention to him. Every man on board seemed well content. Double grog was served on the least excuse. There was duff on odd days, and always a barrel of apples standing broached in the waist for anyone to help himself that had a fancy. Never knew good come of it yet. Spoil folks' lands, make devils. That's my belief. We're not home again yet. But good did come of that apple barrel. It was about the last day of our outward voyage. Sometime that night, or at latest before noon of the morrow, we should sight the treasure island. Just after sundown... When all my work was over, I thought I should like an apple. I ran on deck. The watch was all wo- all forward, looking out for the island. I got into the apple barrel. Suddenly, I heard voices on deck. Look here, barbecue. How long are we going to stand off and on like a blessed bamboo? Why, son, did I want to go into that cabin, I do. I want their pickles and wine and that. How long? By the powers, the last moment I can manage, and that's how long. How many tall ships, think you, have I seen laid aboard? And how many brisk lads drying in the sun at execution dock? And all for this same hurry, and hurry, and hurry. He's a first-rate seaman, Captain Smollett. Save the blessed ship for us. You're all seamen aboard here, I should All folks of lands, you mean. I know the sort you are. You're never happy till you're drunk. It's your long job. I don't know what his treasure is, do I? No more to use as you, and here's this squire... And doctor, with a map and such. Well, then I mean this squire and doctor shall find the treasure for us and help us to get it aboard by the powers. After that... After that, what do we do with them, John Silver, after that? Well, what would you think we does with them? Put them ashore like maroons? Or cut them down like that much pork? Duty is duty, mate. Wait. Wait is what I says. When the time comes, why, 
let her rip. Island. Ten minutes later, we were gathered in the cabin. The squire, Dr. Livesey, the captain, and myself. Now, Hawkins, you have something to say. Speak up. I did as I was bid. I told them the whole story of Silver's conversation. When that was done, all three, one after another, and each with a bow, drank my good health. Then the squire rose. Captain Smollett, you were right and I was wrong. I own myself an ass. I await your orders, sir. Silver is a remarkable man. Here's the way I see it. We must go on because we can't turn back. And what I propose is that we don't wait for them to surprise us, but that we come to blows at our own time and when they least expect it. There must be some faithful ends left. Well, we must find out who they are. Jim Shear can help us more than anyone. The men are not shy with him, and Jim is a noticing lad. Hawkins, I put prodigious faith in you. In the meantime, talk as we pleased. There were only seven out of 26 on whom we knew we could rely. And of these seven, I was a boy. So that the grown men on our side were six to their 19. Next morning, there was not a breath of air moving, nor a sound, but that of the surf booming half a mile away along the beaches. A peculiar stagnant smell hung over the anchorage. The heat was sweltering. And the men grumbled fiercely over their work. Mutiny, it was plain, hung over us like a thundercloud. Around noon, Captain Smollett came up on deck. Hey, We're not damned, we're not trying another sort. Quick turn ashore and let nobody. So you can take the gig. As many as please may go ashore for the afternoon. Hey! Hey, wait a bit, wait a bit, man. What's the error? What's the error? Hey. Silver suspected a trick. He hopped around the deck on his one leg. Wait a bit, Soon the party was organized. Six fellows were to stay on board, and 13, including Silver, began to embark. Suddenly, I had a mad notion to go ashore, too. In a jiffy, I had slipped over the side and curled up in the foresheets of the nearest boat. No one took notice of me. The crews raced for the beach. No sooner had we touched shore than I leaped out and plunged into the nearest thicket. Behind me, I could hear John Silver's voice. Hey, Jim! Jim, my boy! Hey, Jim! 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 John Silver was quick at his work. Two faithful members of the crew were murdered on the island that afternoon. Only an hour after we landed... with my own eyes. From where I lay hidden among the trees. Will you tell me you let yourself be led away with that kind of a mess of swamp? As soon as God sees me, I'd sooner lose my hand than turn to give me due. Mate, it's because I think gold dust of you. Gold dust. John Silver, you're mate of mine no more. If I die like a dog, I'll die in me duty. You've killed Alan, have you? Kill me too if you can. But I defy you. 
started to walk away. Try this, then. Long John whipped the crutch out of his armpit and sent it hurtling through the air. <laughs> it struck him in the back and killed him. Then Silver brought out a whistle. I didn't wait. I ran. I ran as I never ran before. Shaggy. I turned and began to run. Suddenly, the thing appeared in front of me, and running forward, threw itself on its knees before me, and held out its clasped hands and supple. Oh! Nearby. Hey there, 
among my friends. And soon afterwards, the firing ceased. The mutineers were saving their powder. The stockade was a good place, with a paling six feet high all around it. We could have held it against the regiment. And here, Captain Smowers decided to stay and await our enemy's next move. I told Dr. Livesey and the squire about Ben Gunn. Hey! Drag it through! Drag it through! Who's that? It's Silver. He didn't go as men. Send to one. This is a trick. Who goes? Stand we fire! Drag it through! Doctors, watch on the lookout. Dr. Livesey, take the north side, if you please. Yes. Jim, the east. Gray, west. Watch below all and salute muskets. Lively men and careful. What do you want with your flag of truth? Captain Silver, sir! Come to my turn! Captain Silver! Why, you black-hearted scoundrel! Silence! Silence! If you wish to talk to me, you can come, and that's all. It is any treachery to be on your side, and the Lord help you. That's enough, Captain. The word from you is enough. I know a gentleman, and you may lay to that. You'd better sit down. Uh, ain't it gonna let me inside, Captain? The main cold morning, to be sure, sir, to sit outside upon the sand. Oh, there's Jim, the top of the morning, to you, Jim. Well, then you're all together like a happy family, and a man is speaking. If you've anything to say, my man, better say it. Right you were, Captain Smollett. Duty is duty, to be sure. Well, here it is. We want that treasure. We'll have it. At that point. You just soon save your lives, I reckon, and... Yours. You have a chart, haven't you? That's as maybe. Oh, well, you have. I know that. What I mean is, we want your chart. You give us the chart to get the treasure by, and I'll give you my affidavit upon my word of honor to clap you somewhere safe ashore. Is that all you have to say? Every last word by thunder. Refuse that, and you've seen the last of me but musket ball. Very good. Now you'll hear me. If you'll come up one by one, unarmed, I'll engage to clap you all in irons and take you home to a fair trial in England. If you won't, as my name's Alexander Smollett, I've thrown Miss Sovereign's colors, and I'll see you all to Davy Jones. You can't find the treasure. You can't sail the ship. And you can't fight us. I stand here and tell you so. And at the last good word you'll get from me. Now, help me, lad. <laughs> laugh. <laughs> laugh, my thunder, laugh. For an hour, Doc, you'll laugh on the other side. And the die will be the lucky one. Ten minutes later, nothing remained of the attacking party but the five who had fallen. Four on the inside and one on the outside of the palisade. The mutineers did not come back that night. They had got their rations, as the captain put it. The next day was stifling hot. After dinner, Dr. Livesey sent for me. Uh, Jim, was it cheese you said Ben Gunn had a fancy for? Yes, sir, cheese. Well, Jim, uh, just see the good that comes of being dainty in your food. You've seen my snuff box, haven't you? And you never saw me take snuff. The reason being that in my snuff box I carry a piece of Parmesan cheese. A cheese made in Italy, very nutritious. Well, that's for Ben Gunn. Oh, goodbye, my lad. Then he took up his hat and pistol, girt on his cutlass, put the chart in his pocket, and set off briskly through the trees. 
That afternoon, the blockhouse being stifling hot, and the little patch of sand inside the palisade ablaze with midday sun, and so much blood about me, and so many poor dead bodies lying around, a new idea came into my head. This was to swim out under cover of the night, cut the Hispaniola adrift, and let her go ashore where she fancied. The mutineers, after their repulse of the morning, had nothing nearer their hearts than to up anchor and away to sea. This, I thought, would be a fine thing to prevent. It was evening when I reached the east coast of the island. I could see the Hispaniola lying at anchor offshore. And there was the Jolly Roger, the black flag of piracy, flying from her peak. As the last rays of daylight dwindled and disappeared, absolute darkness settled down on Treasure Island. night I was back on land. I was proud of myself, and with good reason. I had grounded the Hispaniola, beached her up tidily in the north inlet with no harm done, safe from the mutineers. I had no trouble finding the stockade. Coming in from the shore, keeping close in shadow where the darkness was thickest, I crept into the blockhouse. I could see nothing. The doctor and the squire must have worried about me. I should lie down in my own place, I thought and enjoy their faces when they found me in the morning. I felt for a place to lie down. Pieces of eight! Pieces of eight! Help out! Pieces of eight! Help out! Bring a torch, Dick! Well, well, shiver my timbers. Jim Hawkins. Dropped in like, eh? Quite a pleasant surprise for poor old John. I've always liked you, I have, Jim, for a lad of spirit. I picked her my own self when I was young and handsome. I always wanted you to join my camp and take your share and die a gentleman. And now, my cock, you've got to. You can't go back to your own lot. Where are they? Now, where do you think, my son? Have you killed them? What do you think? Well, I'm not such a fool, but I know pretty well what I have to look for. But there's a thing or two I have to tell you. And the first is this. Here you are in a bad way. Ship lost, treasure lost, men lost. And if you want to know who did it, it was I. I was in the apple barrel the night we sighted land. And I heard you, John, and you, Dick Johnson, and Hans, who is now at the bottom of the sea, and told every word you said before the hour was out. As for the schooner, it was I who cut her cable. And it was I who brought her where you'll never see her more, not one of you. I no more fear you than I fear a fly. I'll put one of that and here go, you sneaking son of a scrub. Who would I? Come on, sir! Who are you, Tom Morgan? Maybe you thought you was captains here, perhaps. Come oh, if I kill the boy. Did any of you gentlemen want to have it out with me? Him that wants it shall get it. You won't find him by thunder, you'll obey. You may lie to it. I like that boy now. Never seen a better boy than that. He's more a man than any pararachy in this here house. What I see is this. Let me see him that'll lay a hand on him. That's what I see. You may lie to it. Hmm. Seems to have a lot to say. Pipe up and let me hear it. A lie too. Yeah. What? We we got something for you, John. Step up, I won't bite you. Hand it over, lover. The black spot. I thought so. What's on it? Depots. Oh, that's it, is it? Uh, yeah. Very pretty rope, to be sure. 
like print, I swear. But it ain't one bit prettier wrote than this. What's that? And what does it look like, lads? A chart, that's what it is. A chart. A chart of this island, old French chart. Now, what do you say to that? Yes, that's French, sure enough. That's it. Jaya and a clovage to it. So he done ever. Silver's the man. Silver. the end of the night's business. Only much later, I woke up suddenly and felt someone beside me. Jim. Jim, my boy. Yes, Long John? I saved your life here tonight, Jim. Now, you and me stick close, Jim, back to back like in case of trouble and... Talking of trouble, Jim, why did those friends of yours leave that shot behind when they cleared out of here? They did, though. I... I came in here this morning and found the place empty and the chart lying there on the table where I couldn't miss it. And there's something under that. Something under that. Good or bad. The next morning, we set out after the treasure. Tall tree, spyglass shoulder, bearing a point to the north and northeast. Skeleton Island, east, southeast, and by east. In east. Hey, over there! Come quick! At the foot of a pine, half covered with green creeper, a human skeleton lay on the ground. A skeleton! My God! It lay perfectly straight, the feet pointing in one direction, the hands raised above its head like a diver's, pointing directly in the opposite. It ain't natural. It ain't natural, but you know, lads, I have a notion in my old numbskull now. Here's the compass. There's the tip-top point of Skeleton Island sticking out like a tooth. Just take a bearing, will you, along the line of them bones? East, southeast, and by east. I thought so. There's a pointer. Right up there's our line for the pole star and the jolly dollars. This is one of Flint's jokes, and no mistake. Him and these six was alone here. Alone. He killed them. Every man. And this one yawled up here and lay down by the compass. Yes. Six they were... Six we are. And bones is what they are now. I saw him dead, old Flint. Very light with penny pieces on his eyes. Dead, I sure enough he's dead. But if ever spirit walked, it would be Flint. Dear heart, but he died bad, did Flint. Oh, I bet he did. Uh, may not it were. And the wind he was open, and I hear that old song of his coming out clear as hell. And the death all on man already. Do you hear what I hear? That's Flint Pegat. Oh, Flint. Oh, Lord. Hello there, John. 
Don't go cross his spirit. Spirit? Well, maybe. You know, you know whose voice that was? It was like a somebody else's. It was like a... <laughs> By the powers! Ben Gunn! I? I. So it were. Ben Gunn it were. Why, nobody minds Ben Gunn. Dead or alive, nobody minds him. <laughs> Jim Hawkins, Jr., 
Our leading man is 14 years old. Last season, he made a really startling contribution to the stage history of Shakespeare's plays. This was during the course of some experiments with the Mercury Theater sprinkler system. As a consequence of what must certainly have been extensive research in that field, he caused it to rain, actually to rain, and copiously to rain, where in more than 300 years it has never rained in Julius Caesar before. It rained on Brutus. It rained all over Brutus in the forum. I was Brutus, and I ought to know. Now, as dramatic criticism, I found this telling and even final. As a surprise item in the funeral scene, I can assure you that the unexpected appearance on the stage with so many gallons of real water created in us all an impression that was almost overwhelming. Our popular leading man says that he did it all with a match. I don't dare think what he'll do. He's old enough to run for president. But meanwhile, no matter what happens to the plumbing, he can always work for the mercury, as you've probably discovered he's something more than a very gifted performer. And as I told you, he's something less than 15. His name shall not be withheld. I refer to that fine old actor, Arthur Anderson. Mr. Anderson is not new to the microphone nor the mercury. He was prominent in Shoemaker's Holiday and in Julius Caesar as Brutus's boy, G's, the sleepy-eyed, silver-throated Lucius in Brass Buttons. He was at least unforgettable. As to our celebrated Mark Antony, George Coluris, who was always somehow cleverly escaped Rainmaker Anderson, he played Captain Smollett tonight. Eustace Wyatt, late housebreaker of Heartbreak House, was the squire. Ray Collins is responsible for Ben Gunn, among other things. And that was Alfred Shirley as Blind Pew. Then you heard Stephen Fox and Agnes guess what she played, Moorhead, and a Mercury Roundup, William Allen and Richard Wilson inclusive. Jim Hawkins Sr. will bear no comment. Next week, we offer you the ominous and authentic click of the world's most famous knitting needles, Madame Lafarge's needles and Madame herself, Dr. Manette, Sidney Carton, and the entire French Revolution, same time, same station. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I've ever done. Charles Dickens, that is correct, that is absolutely correct, Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. There is at this moment a disturbance in the sub-control room, and if it isn't a tumbrel, it's Arthur Anderson. It's a good thing the program's over. Good night, everybody. Thanks. Please write me the stories you'd like to hear, and goodbye till next week. Remember, 9 o'clock Eastern Daylight Saving Time next Monday night for the Mercury Theater on the Air with The Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. On tonight's production, Bernard Herman composed the original music and conducted and Davidson Taylor supervised for the Columbia Network. Dan Seymour speaking. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. That was Treasure Island, Episode 2 of the Mercury Theater on the Air, originally broadcast July 18th, 1938, on CBS Radio. Okay, Jane and Paul, who wants to go first? What's your opinion? Well, you're definitely setting a high watermark with our first program because, I mean, you have other ones that were just, you could tell it was like a couple of people in a microphone and maybe somebody with some coconut shells making the sound effects. <laughs> this was such a well-done uh production i mean it, it really calls it an audio drama because i mean you, you really have something to listen to because it's not just like oh i'm listening to one person talk this is like going to the movies and closing your eyes it's just very well done 
I agree. The imagery is is fantastic. Um, all of the different, all the characters have specific voices. You you don't. I don't have any trouble telling one from the other. Uh, even the characters had more than one role. Uh, were were skilled enough to be able to change their voices so that uh, only really big fans of the show like me could say, oh, you know, that was so-and-so doing that voice, but that guy also did that voice. But it's hard to tell on the first crack. Absolutely. I thought this was uh, a wonderful production. And you have to think about the fact that it was 80 years ago, right? Yeah. And And definitely... Uh, CBS put put money into this because from everything from all of the actors, you know, several different actors and then the sound effects. And then, of course, on top of that, you have the music and you can tell they're in a big studio. And I was very much uh, into the storytelling and into the sound effects. And really, I felt that it had a lot of layers uh, as as it pertains to audio, even though you know they're all there in, in that one big room, it, it was really amazing how how you there was like a depth of field to the audio. Do you understand what I'm saying? I do. I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, very much. I, I agree with you. A good way of putting it is layers. Uh, in in my mind, I'm thinking of like you. I'm thinking of this gigantic studio that's got a full orchestra and all the actors around several microphones, but also in another compartment of my brain, I'm imagining the Admiral Benbow Inn. I'm imagining mm-hmm. the, the old man walking down the street singing 15 men on a dead man's chest. I'm imagining Blind Pew uh, grabbing Jim's hand. It's all there. All there. Everything is so strong. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I felt the same way. Uh, I was totally – I because we're such a, a visual society now – and the beauty of these old programs like this is that we can step away from our everyday lives and step back in time and use our own imaginations. So like you said, I, I was totally inside of the Binbo Inn and I was behind them when they were in the, the stockade, you know, being shot at the later parts of the story. It was wonderful. And on the desert of the or the beach of the of the island and 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 everything like that, just such wonderful performances by everybody. Or the storms, I just liked when they did the storms with the wind and the rumbling and all that. I'm thinking, you know that you know, imagine if you were a little kid listening to that radio program back then, you probably didn't sleep for a week. It was amazing, yeah. The the way they did it, and and I've recently been reading a book on how. Um, sound effects, radio sound effects were made back in the day. It was written by a veteran sound effects engineer of the uh, going way back to the 30s. And um, they did not have pre-recorded stuff except on rare occasions. So most of the sound effects we heard in Treasure Island were performed live by uh, sound effects people. And so when you have those storms and that wind, they had machinery. It wasn't a bunch of people standing in microphone going (laughs) for the wind. They had wind machines and everything, but it wasn't pre-recorded the way you might have um, on CBS Radio Mystery Theater and so on. The thing that I, I think is interesting, if 
like she said, 80 years ago, this was done and how well it was done. And you look at all the effort that was put forth to make this recording and it was being broadcast live. So there was no, oops, I missed that line. Let's try that again. And so they're doing this live. And like I said, 80 years ago, they're all in the same room, the orchestra, the Foley guys, all the actors and everything. Nowadays, you'd be lucky to have two people in the same room. Everybody's going to be, you know, either just mailing in their lines or they're going to be all across the world, you know, and somebody's going to have the music is going to be canned. All the sound effects are going to be canned. And it, it just it's amazing the effort that they put forth to make this thing. That's the problem I have with my audio drama series for sure uh i have to piece it together like a puzzle after everybody's recorded their stuff except on rare occasions like you said um and i think the benefit of group recording uh is that everybody's got the energy from the other actors it's like a stage production you are feeding off of the people who are in the room with you and so your energy is up you're a little bit better because you're acting with somebody and you're a little bit tighter on the lines because you're waiting for that person to finish so you can jump in. And it's um, a big difference, I think. Oh, definitely. Let's talk about the the performances. Uh, You were mentioning uh, a bit ago, Pete, how because you're more familiar with the actors in the uh, the group, you, you kind of know who's who. What I found interesting, most of all, it took me a bit to realize that Long John was played by Orson Welles, of course, even though I knew that I read that he you know, was the narrator and uh, Long John. But I loved his voicing of it. And I also was interested by Agnes Moorhead's portrayal of Jim Hawkins' mother. It was kind of funny to me because she sounded so old. And, of course, we know that Agnes Moorhead was young when she did it. But to kind of voice the character, she sounded kind of like an older woman mm-hmm. to me. And I thought that was interesting. an old widow woman. Old widow woman. Yeah. And truthfully, if I didn't know that that was Agnes Moorhead, I wouldn't have guessed it from her voice. Usually you can go, I, oh, I can place that person. I can place that person. Agnes, I, I never would have guessed her from that voice. No, I, I saw her right off the bat because I grew up watching Bewitched. And that was my first exposure to Agnes Moorhead as Endora, right? Right. So Everybody. She sounded like Endora. Really? I, see, I didn't think she sounded like Endora. I was just like, huh. Enter, oh, that's really good. <laughs> and she was good. She was probably in her 20s. Like, mm-hmm. Because Orson Welles himself was only 23, gosh darn it, at the time he made this. <laughs> but yeah, Orson, he sucks. Uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> I hate him. Uh, no, he he played um, one of the pirates who came to the inn. Did he? Yes. Um, and he played, of course, um, Long John Silver. He played the older Jim Hawkins. And he probably he had a, probably a couple of other uh, one lines here and there of different characters. So he was very skilled in changing his voice. Um, and the guy who did Doctor Livesey did uh, the Squire, didn't he? No, Ben Gunn. The guy who did Ben Gunn did Doctor Livesey's voice, and that was one of the lines that I was tickled at when he was telling. Um, 
Billy Bones not to drink anymore rum. He said, then you'll um, die. <laughs> for you, rum means death. <laughs> it's like, wow, subtle. Good bedside manner. Drink <laughs> one glass of rum a day and not die. <laughs> but you drink and drink and drink and drink. Uh, now, Ben Gunn, as you said, was played by Ray Collins. I think he also played Ben Bones. I think he did. Or Bill Bones. You're the one who was singing 15 Men on a Dead Man's Chest. Because you can tell, really, that it's the same actor. Because when they hear it later on, you hear 15 Men on a Dead Man's Chest. And it sounds exactly like Bill Bones singing it. It's, what's the same actor? That's Ray Collins. And you may recognize Ray Collins from Perry Mason. And he he was Lieutenant Trask in that series, the older the older cop. Uh, and if you watch that, and he was also in Citizen Kane. Yes. The uh, um, as the boss. Uh, right. The, That's uh, right. Jim Geddes. Gittes or Geddes, one or the other. Big Jim Geddes. So uh, lots of lots of big names. Uh, I loved Arthur Anderson as Jim as young Jim. <clears throat> He was only 14 years old, but good Lord, what uh, just a wonderful, engaging performance, just ter- terrific voice. And how they interspersed the narration. Sometimes it was Wells doing it, and sometimes it was uh, Anderson, the young boy doing it. But it was seamless. You always knew. That's true. You always knew that it was Jim Hawkins at some age. Telling a story. Narrating the action. It was perfectly uh, appropriate for him to narrate as young Jim when he was talking about things that were happening on the ship. Like, I climbed into the apple barrel and overheard them instead of Orson saying, I climbed into the... It just seems... It seemed like it was more fitting for Jim to talk about the things that were happening in the action-type episode. Or, or uh-huh. the, scenes, the, the more action, the actiony scenes, as we say it in the in the in the trade, actiony. <laughs> it keeps you in the moment better when yes, they I when he does yes. it like that. Exactly right, exactly right. So him and then uh, Agnes Moorhead, um, Alfred Shirley isn't a name that's recognized today, but um, he was in quite a few films. Yeah, he was Blind Pew. George Kaluris was also in. Um, Citizen Kane and, and a few other movies. Uh, George Kalouris, I believe, played the man who took care of Charles Foster Kane when he was a boy. He was his guardian. Now, so, um, um, so Jane, you mentioned the music, and that is Bernard Herman, who was their uh, musical arranger and conductor for the, the entire series, I believe. Uh, and he did a fi- he did a fine job, you know. Really Everything was. Yeah, and uh, in some of the passages, um, his use of oboes, which is always really cool, is like kind of an ominous uh, instrument, and, and, and I really liked that. But of course, he was he was just spot on. Really, yeah the um, the way the music matched up with the dialogue was fantastic. Building the tension, building the scene, uh, the stings between the scenes were, were very good just led you right on into the next bit without any sort of uh, uh, jarring sense it was very good 
Yeah, absolutely. When the music is is accompanying and not overriding, like in in the scenes, you don't want it to be intruding on the scene. And he did great with that. It just providing uh, the the what is the word I'm looking for? Um, the mood, the mood, setting the mood, setting the mood. Yeah, that's good. That that'll suit. <laughs> that'll do- <laughs> That'll, that'll, that'll work just as good as anything else. <laughs> I was going to say gefilte fish, but <laughs> I don't think that word fits, but uh, <laughs> it's okay. Down. Now, of course, the, the Mercury Theater went on to um, create many more. It was, as you heard at the beginning, the announcer said a nine episode series. Uh, which, you know, kind of shocked me because I know that they did more than nine, but I guess uh, in the history of it, they said, well, we continue, we like this, and so we're going to continue the show and give you more. And um, as we all know, they went on to make um, other great uh, adaptations, A Tale of Two Cities, The 39 Steps. Now, that's one I didn't like, but we won't go into that. I didn't really like their adaptation of The 39 Steps. but I've listened to nearly all of them, and that runs us up to October 30th, 1938, The War of the Worlds. We won't go into that at all. <laughs> because we talk, I've already talked about that, and so has everybody else who does a show like this. <laughs> so we'll skip that. Um, but let's give a little history. We can give you a little history of Mercury Theater. Um of course, Orson Welles was 23 years old. He was always recognized as a genius. And as he got older, he became that eccentric genius. And then as he got older, he became the drunk genius. Uh, bless his heart. Bless his heart. I, he, was <laughs> he was troubled. He you know, was never diagnosed as anything, but he may well have been bipolar. Um, in hindsight. In hindsight. But... Um, he was young and he was ambitious and he wasn't afraid to go out and do things. And um, if you haven't heard it yet, you should check out there. Um, there was a seven part series of Les Miserables that, was, that came out in 1937. And that is just fantastic. Uh, and you should, you should check that out. It's available on archive.org. Um, his own adaptation of Les Mis and non-musical, of course. And it's another one of those fantastic, wonderful stories um, that is just has the Wells touch. And you're going to believe that he wrote it himself. It's so it's so well done. He made it his own uh, in that. So I, I do recommend that. Um, but does anybody have uh, anything else they want to say about the show itself? what we just listened to before we vote. No, aside from just the fact that as audio dramas, radio plays, whatever the pro- the popular term was back then, listening to one of those is definitely a high watermark for what was out there at the time when it comes to quality and content. I agree. And I think it stands up to anything that's put out today. It was so well made that uh, it's hard to find anything that compares to it. In modern, in the modern audio drama world, you can't help but wonder um, if you could get this, you know, the cast, the orchestra, everybody together with today's technology and record the thing, how it would come out 
and you know compared to the 30s and i i think it would be a big difference but then you would also have to listen to it again and go wow you know they made a recording that good back in the 30s and it was live you know yeah it was live the first time out of the bag they did it right <laughs> yep pete how much rehearsing did Orson do with his company before they went live on these? Because they were doing them every week. What was? Do you know anything about what his rehearsal schedule was with the the players? I've read a little bit about it, and I think he didn't have a chance to rehearse much because he was out doing uh, lots and lots of radio shows. Uh, he was much in demand. So he, funny story. He he said later on, it's probably anecdotal. He would hire uh, an ambulance. It wasn't illegal to hire an ambulance for non-emergency uh, situations, he found out. So he hired an ambulance to take him from studio to studio with the sirens blazing and the lights flashing <laughs> to these different studios to get him there on time. And he would step up and he would be handed the script. He would ask, who am I this time? And they would say, you are uh, a pirate on the South Seas. And he would choose a voice in his mind, and then do do the show without any rehearsal at all. That's how that's, we did it. You were saying? That's amazing. That, that's just mind-blowing, you know? And nobody else could, could, could do that. Uh, but now with um, um, Mercury Theater, his cast would rehearse, and he would have a stand-in who would make notes for him on his script. And so um, he might get something... They, I think they had on. They, they aired on Sunday nights, so he would probably rehearse with them most of the day on Sunday, and that would be his first time seeing the script if he hadn't written it himself. So, uh, that, I'm only guessing, but I, I think he had very little rehearsal time. But he would, he expected the rest of the cast to have worked on it and be up to like his standards by the time they aired. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, uh, we ready to vote? Yes. Let's vote. Okay, what are we voting on, people? As a reminder, we are voting on, one, whether this particular episode is a true representative installment of the overall series, and two, whether or not it is a standalone show that belongs in every radio aficionado's collection. Well, my vote is a foregone conclusion since I chose it for our first episode, right? <laughs> I, I mean, this is only the second episode of a series that people are still talking about to this day. And it really pulls out all the stops, like we said, with the scope of the story, with the music and the performances and the sound effects. Well, you know, it's hard to top this with, say, a typical episode of a show that had only three or four cast members and only an organ for the music. Am I right? So, yeah. yes, Treasure Island is, to me, a fine representative episode of the Mercury series. And as it is also a classic of literature, but not only for that reason, it does belong on every collector's shelf. Paul or Jane, what do you say? I agree wholeheartedly. Like I said, this uh, really sets a high watermark for what was out there to listen to at the time and what's out there to listen to currently. With all the technology we do have, this holds its own against any of that. And the the acting, the music... The sound effects, just the audio quality of it overall is just wonderful. And if you listen to it and don't like it, that's your own fault. <laughs> and I'm going to see that it's definitely uh, a keeper. Uh, I'm relatively new 
to these old school radio dramas, old time radio dramas. As um, so, for me, if somebody were to come up to me, or if I were to talk to somebody like I am now, uh, and they said, "Well," and I would say that I'm new to this, but the first one, the very first one I heard was Treasure Island by uh, Mercury Theater on the Air, and it was amazing. And I would definitely recommend this. I loved it, and and now I'm hooked. Well, that's great. That's great. As you said the other day, the Mercury Retrograde Theater on the Air. (laughs) 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 That's the the, the other side of the universe, sort of the alternate universe version of it. (laughs) One step forward, two steps back. (laughs) All right. Well, good, good, good. So um, there's something I forgot to mention. Have either of you ever read the book? That this is based on? No. No. No, I haven't either. Uh, but I've seen a, a few films of it, and I, I read the uh, Classics Illustrated comic book when I was a kid. So I think that counts. <laughs> I, I saw the Muppets version. Yeah, yeah, okay. I pretty good. <laughs> now, when I was a kid, uh, cable was brand new. Cable TV was brand new, and we got uh, Channel 9 from Chicago, WGN. In, uh, in 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 my hometown of Pekin, Illinois, and there was on Sunday afternoons on Channel Nine Family Classics with Fraser mm-hmm. Thomas. I'm sure. Oh yeah, all uh, watched that too. Uh, but they would show Treasure Island every year, and the version of Treasure Island they showed had Jackie Cooper and yeah. uh, as as Jim and Wallace Beery as uh, uh, Long John Long John Silver. Now, I loved Wallace Beery as Long John Silver. Of course, I think Wallace Beery was fantastic in nearly everything. But um, I thought that Jackie Cooper was always kind of overrated um, as a child actor. He was just too... Precious. Too, too precious, exactly. So He would talk like this all the time, have a pout on his face. And go, burr, burr, burr. <laughs> so if we're going to compare performances of the young Jim Hawkins, let's say Arthur Anderson... Is is uh, head and shoulders above uh, Jackie Cooper as far as that goes. I was really really pleased with with that. Uh, so that's all I wanted to uh, say about that there. Um, so I'm going to tally the vote. We've got one, two, three in favor. Now, just like uh, that famous TV show, um, <laughs> whose line is in any way? The votes don't matter. It's it's really. What about the points? And the points don't matter. The votes oh. don't matter. The points don't matter. But uh, you all win a thousand points for agreeing with me, and uh, so thank you. But that um, this brings us to the end of our first installment of Old Time Radio Essentials with Jane St. John and Paul Arbizi and me, Pete Lutz. Next time, whose turn is it? Next time, it's Paul's. It's Paul's my turn, and Paul is bringing us. Well, I'm kind of going to the other end of the spectrum a little bit. Uh, instead of the full-blown audio drama, I wanted something a little bit more comfy, cozy. So I was going to pick the uh, um, Jack Benny show, uh, particularly an episode where Jack is trying to score some tickets for the Rose Bowl. And it's just the way the cast interacts. They work together for so long. They intermesh so well that uh, their jokes are seamless. And it's one of those uh, shows that the more you listen to it, the more the jokes you get, because then you know who the characters are 
how they're going to react to a certain thing and stuff like that. And overall, I think it's a really good episode of a really good show. And we'll all find out about that next time. Uh, do you know what year that uh, that episode's from? I'm pretty sure that episode was from 1948. Okay, so they were were they with uh, CBS or NBC at that time? I think that was CBS. Okay, probably uh, Lucky Strike program. It was that or still J E L L O. Hello, everybody. This is Jack. <laughs> All right, so that's next time on Old Time Radio Essentials. Jane, Paul, tell the masses what they need to know. Old Time Radio Essentials is a production of 63 Audio, a proud member of the all-new Mutual Audio Network. Find us at www.mutualaudionetwork.com or www.naradaradio.libsyn.com. Did I say that right, boss? Very good. Very well done. Thank you. Or on iTunes under Mutual Audio Network and or Narada Radio Company and on any pod podcatcher you may happen to use as well. You can find us just about everywhere. You shouldn't try to force all that out in one breath. <laughs> <I'd>, uh... <laughs> like us on Facebook at Mutual Audio and at Narada Radio Company Fans and Friends. We're not on Twitter yet, but we will be by our next episode. If you want to suggest a future episode, write us at f6.3 at gmail.com. That's the letter F, the number six, and the word point, and the number three at gmail.com. Put the words essentials in the subject line. Thanks to all of you for listening, and be sure to catch us next time on Old Time Radio Essentials. Bye-bye for now. Bye. Goodbye. Sixty-three Audio. You're tuned into Monday Matinee on the Mutual Audio Network. Tomorrow is all things horror on Tuesday Terrors. Subscribe to the full Mutual Audio Network feed for every day. Or find Tuesday Terrors in your favorite podcast players. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together. <laughs>